Canadian affiliate founded in 1928 at Sir de Mon Spring in Acadia National Park and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. The time is 9.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we are going to be talking with Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation. We've had Chief Francis on a, a number of times, and uh, the Penobscot Nation re recently uh, had an election, uh, and uh, he was re-elected. So, um, Kirk... Um, if you want to tell us about uh, how many years you've been chief now, uh, I've forever, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I uh, I appreciate it, Donner, and I, I appreciate being here and seeing you again and uh, talking about these important issues. Um, yeah, I'm in my ninth year as the elected chief at Penobscot Indian Nation. Um, it's been a uh, an amazing journey for me. I think um, I really have especially over the summer and campaigning and talking to people. And it just uh, allowed me a, a few months to really reflect on my time um, as the chief and, and some of the work we've done, some of the challenges, you know, a lot of successes but some failures and, and trying to understand how we can uh, continue to grow and, and get better and, and uh, continue to enhance people's quality of life. So I'm... Um, I'm really proud to do what I do, and um, and what makes me most proud and growing up in that community is that uh, people have uh, ratified the fact that I am the guy to do it, and that is uh, really gratifying. Yeah, and I think that you've done a lot, a lot of work uh, on both the state and the federal level, uh, even more so than uh, other chiefs uh, before you. And I think uh, the last show that you were on, I think it was in February, I'm not sure. But the last show, you were talking about the various uh, committees, uh, you said, at NCAI that you were on. Um, and uh, do you still maintain those positions? I do. And uh, actually, it was uh, just reelected or will be confirmed at the upcoming annual meeting of United South and Eastern Tribes as an executive officer of that organization. Um, we, we didn't have an opponent for that office, so I don't know if that's... So nobody uh, else wanted it, well, is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, that's uh, what you often wonder. It's yeah. like, uh, am I the only one crazy enough to do it? But I yeah. think that um, it allows me to um, really transform that position into um, and translate that position into local um, success and local... Um, you know, growth and, and opportunity and all of those things because um, really you mentioned, you know, the national committees and having a presence within the United States Congress um, through enhancing and elevating our lobbying services and legal services and, and just overall elevating the conversation at the national level, I believe is critical to Penobscot's success. You know, getting to the core of where 
these decisions are made where um, you know Congress has plenary authority. They they have a system and a structure set up to interact and with the uh, with native nations here in the United States and on a government to government trust fiduciary um, premise. So we're we're really committed to that, and I think that is uh, is is so important to us to um, make sure we're getting outside our community and educating um, folks that make decisions on behalf of Indians about our environment. And I think you mentioned also um, that there was some uh, federal level uh, bills that went through, and, and um, I'm not sure how we fared on them. I think one was the uh, uh, Violence Against Women, mm-hmm. um, and I think there was some opposition from uh, Senator Collins on that one. Uh, how do we stand with those? So over the last four years or so under this president's administration, there's really been a, um, a focus on fixing uh, historical wrongs against uh, Indian nations in terms of what are the obstacles and lifting those obstacles to future success to overcome hundreds of years of conditions uh, at no fault of Indian people. So The Violence Against Women Act, very important. Um, You know, there were other bills, too, the Stafford Act amendments for direct disaster relief. You had the Hearth Act, which lift bureaucracy on leasing on tribal Indian lands to promote and stimulate economic development. There was a whole host of things that that were comprehensively done. Tribal Law and Order Act, enhancing courts jurisdiction, understanding that Native communities, many of them border territories, are are dealing with a lot of the same things that, that a lot of Maine and a lot of the country is in terms of drug abuse, drug trafficking, and a whole host of issues. So, um, you know, and the Violence Against Women Act, um, really for the first time since the Supreme Court Oliphant decision, says that uh, Native tribes can have jurisdiction over non-members. And the reason for that is um, 85% of the offenders that are assaulting our women um, and the statistics tell us that one in every three Native women will be assaulted at some point in her life, uh, 85% of the time by a non-Indian. So um, that's just the reality of, of the statistics, and um, Congress said we got to do something about that, and there's no better solution than a local solution. So, um, And as you mentioned, uh, all these acts have been challenged by the state of Maine. Um, the state of Maine takes the position that... Um, Federal acts passed for the benefit of Indian people um, post-1980 don't apply in Maine. And so when you get into that, it's really disturbing to understand uh, that mindset. It's basically we're not going to look at why these laws are in place. We're not going to look at why local control over those issues are so important and so effective. And we're not going to look at the condition and try to make that better. We're just going to tell you, we think we have the law on our side and we're going to maintain control. And, you know, it's become evident um, that it's really simply about that. So when you have that mindset, especially in the in the VAWA, where it talks about no double jeopardy, this doesn't supersede state jurisdiction, states can prosecute the same cases tribes do, um, you know, the federal courts can do the same thing. So there's no double jeopardy issue within the VAR. And that was one thing states kind of insisted on. Well, if tribes are going to have this jurisdiction, then um, 
states want to make sure they got some mechanism to take a crack at it if there is a an issue of constitutional protections, et cetera, within the processes. So, um, so I really don't understand that mentality. But the Wabanaki of Maine are being prohibited from accessing laws to grow, be successful. But what's more disturbing is most of those acts that have been passed are to stimulate economic growth and, more importantly, um, to enhance public safety. So, actually, the result of uh, all of this refusal to recognize uh, uh, tribal sovereignty, we'll say, mm-hmm. uh, results in poverty of the tribes, basically. It's so true. I mean, a generational poverty is the number one obstacle we have, and it leads to so many other things. And we know this through science, through uh, studies, through, you know, one of the largest studies ever done on Native American people east of the Mississippi. We know that um, the root causes for historical, not overcoming historical trauma, the root causes for health disparities, for obesity, for high smoking levels, for substance abuse, all of those things are rooted in the inability to have an adequate lifestyle and that's conducive to the success of families. So you have, um, and that's of course requires resources. And when you have over 50% of Wabanaki people in this state that are working um, in a condition within tribal communities that has an unemployment rate from 25 to 75 percent um when you have over 50 percent of them that even are lucky enough to be working and have opportunity um, they're working at the poverty level and so and when over 50 percent of the average main citizen is working at over a fifty thousand dollar a year salary um, it tells you that these disparities are not based in um you know the want or the know-how of our workforce. It's really about the obstacles that are put in front of us to create the opportunities for their success. So despite that, we continue to plug away and do some good things and get more and more people to work and, and get more and more success at the individual level. And, you know, as you know, our government is made up of those individuals and, um, and our success directly correlates to that. So, so, um, you know, through all these conversations we have, you know, we don't consider ourselves, you know, we don't hang our head and, and, and whine about the victims that we are and all of those things. Um, we have to show the strength of that Penobscot people have always shown and, and overcome these things. And we're going to work to do that in multiple ways. And that doesn't mean we give up the fight um, for the basic rights of Indian people. Um, and we'll talk about that more I'm sure as we move forward but uh, I just I'm really proud of the success we've had despite it's an amazing story really when you think about it you know given the fact that we've had elections and not just tribal but statewide elections and uh, Governor LePage has been reelected mm-hmm. um, what do you see for for future tribal state relations do you see that improving or or not You know, one thing that uh, I've come to learn is that elections matter very little in terms of the tribal state relations. Uh, They matter um, in the sense that the majority party gets to um, gets to appoint or elect a uh, attorney general. I think that. 
the foundational problem in tribal state relationships is here in Maine is the struggle for control and to keep it. And, you know, tribes don't come at things from that philosophy. Our, our thing is, look, you know, we have this over 10,000-year-old government. Uh, we've been very capable of taking care of our own affairs. For us, it's really a, about our ability to govern that's con- the ability to govern that's conducive to um, the success of our nation. So uh, it's not about control for us. It's not about uh, owning. It's not about any of those things. It's really about uh, maintaining a way of life and, and moving forward in a manner that is conducive to Penobscot's values and traditions and customs and all of those things. So none of that gets considered by other people. So I think tribal state relations are at a crossroads right now. And I think that um, it can either get worse or it can start to get better. And I, um, you know, I'm always optimistic that it will get better. But, you know, history tells us that um, we're going to remain very much at odds if we continue to have this struggle about who gets to govern the Penobscot people. And um, quite frankly, I can't understand a mindset that thinks that um, it should be any other way. So, so again, you know, I think that uh, tribal state relationships will, will continue to have its issues. I, I think that, um, you know, our nation-to-nation relationship is with the federal government. Um, the problem in Maine is there's no structural setup to deal with our issues. Um, there's no mechanism that puts this relationship on a level it should be at. And, um, you know, and quite frankly, the state is under no legal obligation to, um, to make sure it's meeting its responsibilities. So, and I say responsibilities because it would seem to me that if you, for instance, in my role, if we take the responsi- um, if we take the approach that we have decision-making authority over issues, and we say that's our issue to decide, and you're not going to have that ability, then we better take responsibility for it. Um, so what we often see in the state is we're going to invoke our decision-making authority based on some some. Uh, some legal language that we think we can interpret to our advantage. But even if it's decided that we do have that ability, we're not going to, uh, you know, take the responsibility for um, carrying through with that authority. So, you know, the tribes, the tribes are um, in a place right today where they have the ability, we have the ability to, um, to truly self-govern and we are 30 years from self-determination. We're in a self-governing era. We're seeing it all over the country. There's nothing wrong with that in a coexisting um, situation. And, you know, until we can work to find common ground and we come to the table in that spirit, respecting the sovereign authority of everybody there, um, I'm not sure how that moves forward in a productive way. Yeah, and, and it seems to me that... Uh no, all across the country, the, st- the, the tribes and the various states seem to uh, get along. And sovereignty, the word sovereignty, really hasn't destroyed those partnerships. 
Uh, it, it just seems like Maine has been uh, like frightened of that word, and mm. and they've sort of like kept us in a in in the basement for hundreds of years. And I think you know since the land claims, the very first thing that Maine did was dissolve the uh, uh, department that dealt directly with uh, with the tribes. Um, what's your perspective on that? Do you think they, they should recreate something to deal with the tribes, or we should create something? Mm-hmm. To, what do you think? Well, I think a couple of things, and we've talked about some of this. I, I think that um, I think they do. I think they need a structure to specifically deal with Indian affairs. I think that um, whether that is a cabinet-level position within state government, um, in Maine, east of the Mississippi, you have the most Indian territory of any state. And you have four tribal nations here. And whether you want it to be or don't want it to be, it's a fact that um, the, the tribes of Maine are always going to be here, They've always been here. Um, history also tells us that uh, no one's going anywhere anytime soon. And this is a critical part of the makeup of Maine. And this needs attention. It needs attention at the policy level to be able to work through issues. Um, it needs issues. It needs uh, attention um, all through the system so that we are truly being dealt with in a manner that is not only conducive to our level of government, but that also um, is productive. And so I just think that that attention hasn't been there. So when you go to Augusta and sit in a room and have to argue over whatever the issue is, um, and to have people sitting there that have no understanding of Wabanaki history. They have no understanding of of the Penobscot's uh, place in the very creation of this country and why the state of Maine is a state today, um, has no um, understanding of the treaties, has really no understanding of the premise of the land claims, except to look at some strict language that uh, they think um, is interpreted to mean that it's in the state's advantage. So, so when you have all of that, you, you're doomed to failure in Augusta. The system just doesn't work. So um, a committee on Indian affairs, a cabinet-level position um, that interfaces with tribes, uh, offices that treat us like a nation. Uh, we talked about this earlier. Um, our representatives really being ambassadors for our tribes and um, and really starting to structurally get set up so that um, a government-to-government relationship can truly exist. And without that commitment, um, you know, the tribes have just grown too much to be talking about, you know, commodities and, and this and that. I mean, we're really talking about business development and public health issues at a very high level, public safety issues at a high level. And, um, and self-governance like has never been discussed before among tribes. So so um, Maine has got to make a commitment to grow with that or, you know, in 2060 we'll be talking about 1980. And, and I don't think that's uh, indicative of growth. Well, I know that uh, policymakers in Augusta, you know, when they 
start their terms. The new terms, they usually have an orientation. And, uh, you know, my feeling has always been that they should have something in there about the tribes and the tribal state relations, which they, they I think they did one time and then just stopped. But, you know, my thought is, okay, so um, if, they're, if they're not going to do it, then maybe the tribes should get together and, and do some sort of uh, workshop and invite the, uh, the legislators to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just an idea. Yeah, you know, we did, you know, I think two different legislative bus tours to Indian Island <coughs> where we uh, talked to them a lot, you know, a lot of difficult questions about what sovereignty means. And, um, you know, we get the whole gamut of questions from, well, what if you wanted to build a nuclear plant, how would the state's concerns be mitigated and something like that, which is <laughs> kind of ridiculous. the most radical thing you yeah. could go to. But it's, um, you know, I think that, you know, having that conversation about inherent sovereignty and, and uh, understanding the historical place of, of Wabanaki people here um, is critical to making decisions. You know, if you're a judiciary committee member and you don't understand Wabanaki history holistically um, and comprehensively, I think that um, how can you assume an authoritative role over Indian affairs in managing the Settlement Act legislatively without that understanding unless, you know, the goal and objective is simply to get your advice from the Attorney General and make decisions that are in the best interest of the state. So what people often don't understand, and at the federal level, I find they get this much better. It's, it's the, um, when you're elected to those roles, you have your constituent responsibilities. And let's face it, I mean, anybody who's elected, um, your constituents, you better keep them happy or you're not going to be there long. So there's a constituent responsibility. And, but you also, when you get appointed to committees and take those roles, like on judiciary, like on the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs, Congress in general with plenary authority, um, your responsibilities are twofold. They're to your state, to your constituents, to, to the country, but they're also to Indian people separate and distinct from all those things. And when you start meshing all those things together, which is the legislative makeup we have now in dealing with Indian Affairs, it just gets convoluted, confusing, and at the end of the day, the constituent wants and needs and the state needs are always going to win. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me there's a gap as big as the Grand Canyon here in, in, in understanding anything uh, tribal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, of course, there's no justice that can, that can be had or any reasonable decisions that can be made if, they, if they're ignorant uh, of our past and history and whatever. So true. Um, speaking of that, uh, what's going on with the, the fisheries issues between the tribe and the state? Well, you know, as you probably saw in the paper, um, and I'll go back um, and talk about a little history around this, but I think that, um, you know, the tribe, the tribe's position with all its treaty rights is if it wasn't specifically given up, then we retain it. So... And that's, that's federal Indian law. I mean, that's the canons of construction tell you that in federal Indian law that any ambiguities always weigh in the favor of the tribes. 
the um, and if you haven't given it up, then you retain it. So the tribe's feeling in our fisheries, whether it's saltwater fisheries, whether it's inland fisheries, it's is we never gave that up. Um, so so that's the tribe's perspective on that, and it, that is such a core cultural and traditional practice that. Um, which is why you see so much contention around this when the tribes are pushed back from that practice. So, so I think when you go back and look um, at the legislature and the state's behavior around this issue, um, it hasn't been the best. I mean, if you look at um, the Mitzik report that was recently released, it shows um, through internal documents, through a whole host of things that were obtained and and we'll be talking about this very visibly here in the next few months, I would think, um, that the state made a conscious decision to, if not totally violate the tribe's rights in creating legislation to control fisheries among tribal people, um, they certainly walked a line they knew was very thin. And, and you can tell that through the Mitzik report um, You'll see conversations with attorney generals and others that that talk about, um, or at least that office that talk about. Um, well, you know, if this gets brought to light and we're wrong, here's kind of our out clauses to to deal with that. And what happens in the legislature is that, again, it's an educational issue um, and not a clear understanding of, of all of these things as it relate to Indian people, rights, treaties, all those things. Uh, but it's also um, becomes just normal behavior after a while. So you saw that um, in the last legislative session around the Elver issue. And what you saw was a total ignoring of federal Indian law when you have the attorney general say, we can't have two sets of laws, we can't have two sets of rules here because, you know, there's a unfair advantage to the tribes and there's, you know, there's a, um, this kind of a um, advantage um, that creates an inequity in the law and it's not constitutional, et cetera. Equal protection stuff. There you go. Yeah. And so I think... Um, but when you look at federal Indian law and, and federal law in general, Supreme Court cases, all of those things, what they've said is this is not a special race-based right for Indian people. This is about a distinct and unique political entity that um, has its own ability to self-govern and can be treated differently based on that political status. So, um, you know, the Constitution is very clear about um, using race for any advantages in the law um, but the Supreme Court again has ruled that tribal sovereignty trumps that because it's about uh, the distinct political entities that, that tribes are so when you know those, all those arguments were made around the fisheries issue um, they were ignored and the tribes were legislated um, and restricted from access to that fishery um, so for example, the Penobscot uh, gets 6% of the total allowable take of, um, of Elvers, which you saw in a paper a few weeks ago, was cut another 2,000 pounds. So, um, so again, 
that one piece of legislation now continues to have continuous negative effects on the tribes without any process. And it seems like when you're dealing with sovereign governments, there should be some process. And so, um, so we get cut without, without one hearing, without one uh, vote or, or any of that. So it's just this legislation, it's not just one piece of legislation in a vacuum. It continues to hurt tribes over and over and over again. And this issue is going to become very front and center, um, I think, this year. And uh, I would just say that the patience of Indian people in this state around, especially something as core to their culture as fisheries, is uh, running thin. Right. You know, if uh, now the, the, the Mitzik report addresses these these issues is that mm-hmm. what you're telling me so if someone from the public wanted to get a copy of the Mitzik report how would they do i that? believe it's on the main indian tribal state commission website um if not um certainly the contact number for the executive director is there and um and i'm sure that we would happily share that with whoever uh, wanted to take a look at that yeah and the other thing too is you know it it, it seems to me that a lot of these these uh, sovereignty issues stem from the land claims. And, you know, like the, the question is, is that working for us? You know, the <laughs> land claims is, I mean, the short answer is no. And I think that the land claims is very dated in a lot of aspects. Um, but in many ways, um, we're nowhere near a document that the tribes understood they were signing. Um, when you look at, you know, the over a dozen changes made just in the congressional process after months after anybody from the tribe ever t- ever looked at that, um, that document appears at the end to be nothing like the one that was submitted, right? So you have a lot of... Uh, I'll give you an example, you know, the, the language that causes us the most problems and one we ha- take a lot of issue with is uh, 1735B in the Settlement Act, which, which basically says that um, if a bill passed by Congress um, for the benefit of Indians does not specifically mention the tribes of Maine, then it doesn't apply in Maine. Um, so... Even though all federal Indian law and congressional acts say this applies to all federally recognized tribes, which is what we are, uh, the state has argued successfully that um, that unless it says that specifically says Maine, then um, then it doesn't apply. And so, so even. And I'll give you an example. You know, in the Stafford Act amendments, we tried to invoke that provision. We had main language in that bill, and uh, the senator held, threatened to hold the bill until that language was removed. You know, so under um, Senate rules and filibuster rules now, there's no talking required. They can simply submit paperwork and kill a bill without ever talking about it. So. Um, we started to get a lot of pressure from all the other tribes, as you can imagine, around the country, you know, that were experiencing wildfires and hurricanes and life and death situations that this bill was critical. And so we had to back off from that language to to still be attacked on that bill 
even after that language was removed. But the, um, the bottom line is the tribes have no mechanism to access laws passed for the benefit of Indian people. And we think there's a real um, constitutional issue there when you think about um, Congress passing laws and then saying who it can and cannot apply to. You don't see that anywhere else. Um, you don't see, um, you know, laws passed for any other group of people that, um, and then say, well, it applies to all of you except you dozen or so. I mean, it's just... It's it, blatant discrimination. <laughs> it is. You know, from, from the constitutional mm-hmm. level. So that so that 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 issue is you know front and center on our plate. Um, as you know, we got a lot of legal challenges going on right now, and uh, but that one is um, has to be one that all the tribes um, get involved in and uh, find remedies to because you know the Settlement Act. And one of the things we continuously talk to the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs about is it's not about the tribes want to um, go back on this modern-day treaty. You know, that's not what we're saying. We're not trying to rewrite history. We're trying to put history in context and the appropriate context and the accurate one. And that is um, that, and I think the whole condition around the land claims needs to be looked at, the um, the amount of duress and, and, um, and kind of hurrying that went on to get that through and also you know you took a people that were wards of the state of Maine and basically forgotten about uh, that only started voting in the late 1960s in this state had um, you know very very bad infrastructure running water you know uh, bathrooms uh, the whole thing um, was just, and then you dangle these carrots out there and you um, start to talk about, you know, you're going to be terminated as a tribe, you're going to this, that, the other thing if you don't sign this. And then, you know, to have all those language changes, I mean, I just think a review of this document, its effectiveness, and uh, is it conducive to how the United States wants Indians treated today? Yeah. And I'm not saying at that level everything's perfect either, but, you know, when you look at the behavior of the United States towards Indian people over the last, you know, certainly the last four or five years um, and what they're trying to accomplish, uh, I think uh, this Settlement Act is so far away from those principles that, you know, especially with the U.N. Declaration as well. So Yeah. And, you know, and the thing is here that, you know, the Settlement Act, you all you know, w- was made up of, of three participants, mm-hmm. and that there have been changes over the past years in that Settlement Act, and the changes have only been from one perspective, and that's the state, mm-hmm. and that's in their courts. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no mechanism uh, in that Settlement Act that requires uh, this to be heard in federal courts. Right. So you know they've been doing an end around. Uh, reinterpreting the message or the, the the statutes in that settlement act in their favor, and it's totally uh, it's it's totally changed the meaning of the act, uh, and an act that was really meant to help us be free of the state has now become a club to hold us 
under their control. Exactly right. And I think when you read the Senate committee report, the tribes of Maine will forever be free from state interference, right? Um, that's not what we're seeing. And so I think the intent of the Settlement Act was clear to everyone. Um, I think there's been some fancy lawyering and uh, in the picking apart of every word. And in terms of dispute resolution, I mean, that's a huge issue. And, you know, you'll remember during the Tribal State Work Group, one of the very small things I felt that the tribe was asking for in that process was a D.C. court to hear disputes over the Settlement Act. You have a state involved, you have tribes involved, and you have the federal government involved, and everybody felt that was the appropriate thing. Um, that was pushed back on heavily and not considered. And then, um, you know, the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission, its very existence in statute is to deal with disputes under the Settlement Act because they recognized that this was, and even the state negotiators have said, this is an organic document. This document is not set in stone. We realized there were probably some errors in it. We realized that there were probably things that would need to be tweaked. And this commission was set up to oversee the effectiveness of the Settlement Act, but to also deal with gray areas. Um, as you know, that entity rarely gets used or has any legislative clout when they do rule on things. So that's been the challenge is who it's not appropriate. I always equate it to, you know, it's like going through a divorce and, and your, your spouse is the judge. And you can't, um, you can't get a fair and reasonable resolution if the state is hearing the dispute or the federal government for that matter. So you, there has to be some third party um, to deal with that. Yeah. And uh, right now, I, I, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but has, uh, has the governor appointed uh, the state reps for that Mitzik uh, commission? You know, um, I think they, I couldn't say as we sit here. I know they were waiting a while for that to happen, and whether that's happened as of today, I'm not sure. Um, I, I just don't know. Well, it just seems to me that that's another, another tool of fairness uh, within the act itself mm -hmm. that's been denied to us uh, from the state. Absolutely. And, um, and you know, strengthening in Mitzik, you know, because they're tasked with a lot of very serious things. I mean, fishery stuff included. And so I think that, um, you know, getting back to what we all understood in 1980 is important. Not what the state understood or where they wanted to go with it, but what the tribes understood. What the tribes understood is that it was an enhancement of sovereignty and that, yes, we had to talk about things. We had to find common ground. And yes, there were some jurisdictional give-ups in that. But those core inherent sovereign issues of the tribe, the Penobscot River, our hunting, fishing, trapping rights, our, our ability to... Um, to manage our environment, the ability to uh, economically develop, the ability to enhance public safety in our judicial systems and uh, take care of our people from a social service standpoint. All of those things were, uh, were not given up by the tribe. That's a self-governance right. Yeah, and, and most of that's been under attack, including 
the council session minutes that, uh, you know, they, they're subject to FOIA. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that went through or not, but that was one of the things that they, that they zeroed in on. So I, to me, I mean, they're just, they're just trying to uh, destroy the tribes with this instrument called the land claims. Exactly. So any, anyway, so the, the, um, the river case, mm-hmm. uh, what's new with that? Well, we're, uh, we're through the, all the evidentiary and discovery phase of the case. Um, we expect everything to be in front of the court by next week, so by the end of the month, I think. So, um, so we expect uh, you know, the, the court to rule on what is sure to be a summary judgment request by the state. Um, and our hope is, is that the court decides um, to hear hear the case you know we think that we have a very compelling story around indigenous fishing rights and and our relationship to the Penobscot River um, why that is such a core critical um, practice for Penobscot people and we don't see this really as a um, you know a control issue we see it as a core cultural issue an identity issue and and so when the state of Maine feels comfortable writing a paragraph to a, an ancient historical Indian tribe in, in the state of Maine and say in one paragraph that we don't think you have any indigenous fishing rights on the river that bears your name, where we know you've been for thousands of years, and where we know you were a riverine people in a fishing culture, um, that's, that's concerning. And it's concerning in a lot of ways, but to me in the most serious way is it's a termination action and it's really some people can call it genocidal but when you take a people people's identity away that have lost so much um you know that couldn't that's not acceptable and we had to uh, push back on that and we think you know it is crystal clear that the tribes um certainly maintain a connection to the penobscot river and certainly um, have an exclusive right to uh, manage and maintain a sustenance fishery for our membership and not just now but for future generations again to be Penobscot and that's that's really what the case is about it's about um, our ability to remain who we are in the small amount of area that uh, we're left with and to say that that Penobscot River has no connection to the Penobscot people um, formally is is kind of outrageous and surprising i mean it's like a i don't know i mean it's one of those deals where you think obviously you know this is this is the way it is and then that gets questioned and you're like what mm-hmm. <laughs> it's sort of like well that's it you know in the office again the attorney general's office has been very schizophrenic on this issue so you have you know a james tyranny opinion back in the 80s that said yeah they have indigenous fishing rights there they can harvest salmon um and you know what it all comes down to when the tribe starts to um enforce its authority to protect and manage those subsistence resources which that's all we're talking about here we're not talking about blocking non-indians from the river we're not talking about Uh, managing non-Indians. We're not talking about any of that stuff. What we're talking about is having an understanding 
of the taking of wildlife within our territory. So the easiest thing for the state to do is say that's not your territory. And um, because if they acknowledge that it is, then they have to acknowledge our status within it. And, and to me, in 2014, government's trying to do, take a third of our reservation as we know it and, and to take our land, um, it's a crime, really. And so we're, we're really uh, concerned on a lot of levels, not just about the ability to fish, but the, about the ability to remain who we are and resemble those ancient people that, uh, that are our ancestors. So we, um, we, have to, um, we have to fight vigorously on that issue. And, and you know, it's, it's too bad, and it's really sad because I think that's an issue that could have been resolved um, in other ways. And, you know, it's a huge drain on resources and time and energy and animosity and all the things that come with litigation. And, um, and it's just too bad. But I think that I truly believe in my heart the tribe is not only in a great legal place with this case, but also in the very right place um, in terms of uh, right and wrong on the issue. Yeah, you know, I, and it just seems to me that when you... When you step back and you look at everything uh, from a distance, it's so like we're spending so much of our energy and our resources fighting legal battles. Uh, we're not looking to the future mm-hmm. t- together. We're not planning uh, economic development projects uh, in partnership with the state. We're not doing those things that's going to move us forward for, for future development. Uh, this stuff is just stunt, stunting, you know, our growth uh, as a tribe and as a state. It's so true. And if you, if you look at what's going on around Maine, and let's just look at economics here for a second. You, you look at, you know, we're sitting from a mill right here, not too far from us in the studio, that doesn't look as vibrant today as it, as it has in the past. You have a mill in, a, in our hometown up there, um, in Old Town, that not as vibrant as it used to be, right? And it's sad because real people are affected by that. And um, But we have opportunities. And what the state has to start understanding is promoting its culture and its heritage and um, through tourism and, and reinventing towns to bring manufacturing back to Maine. Um, you know, the ability to bring tax-free sales and, and to do a whole host of things that could boost Maine's economy are right there within Maine's Indian tribes. And the wherewithal is there. The resources the resources and infrastructure are not. Um, those partnerships could bear fruit for a lot of Maine people. Um, we have opportunities through um, Native aid contracting, through federal contracting to... Um, partner with non-Indian entities that, um, as most of these contracts, have a small business component to it, and you need to partner with small minority contractors. And, um, and we have an opportunity to transform some of these facilities into manufacturing facilities and create jobs that are sustainable. And so um, I think, uh, you know, we can't get by the control factor. And when you're always looking through that lens... There's no vision in terms of um, how to be creative and uh, 
which would do two things, not just help the economy, but would build our relationship as well. And so, um, so I think, you know, there's this real fear of not just fear, but almost an insecurity about, um, the tribes becoming a major contributor. And I think, um, once the tribes become a major contributor, then you start to be looked at as that. And, um, and the whole public opinion arena kind of changes at that point. So I believe that. I, I believe there's a mindset among some, and there are great people in Augusta. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of good people in Augusta, many of them I'm friends with. But there just seems to be a mindset among some, and unfortunately they're the people in roles that, that make a difference. Um, that, you know, if we give those tribes an inch, you know, the the whole apple cart is going to get disrupted. And, and again, I don't know how that translates into anything negative. It's just scary, I guess, for the other side. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think maybe, you know, we've been looking at this through a very wide lens, our economic situation. And I'm wondering, you know, since there are these the towns where the mills are, you know, in, in, in dire straits sort of, um, what would stop the, the towns from maybe uh, approaching the tribes and trying to figure out a partnership or something that they can do together? Uh, Nothing would. Um, and I think that um, we're starting to have those conversations now with some town leaders. Uh, we're recognizing that some towns, uh, for example, in the river case, right, a lot of towns got drug into that. Um, by an attorney that said, you know, if the tribe wins this case, it's going to affect your business and all these other things. Well, many of those towns were out of the geographical location of the case and are downstream. They would have no effect. We would have no effect on them. And uh, we contend we'd have no effect on anyone. This isn't um, this is a really a fishing, sustenance fishing rights-based case. So... Um, so, you know, you still have that kind of state and their partner-driven uh, fear-mongering that's going on um, that has an effect on local towns as well. But we're starting to see people really step outside of that and say, wait a minute, you know, that's, that's not what's going on here. These tribes aren't trying to control the world. They just want to be left alone and, and have the same opportunities as everyone else and uh, have their governmental status respected and... Um, they're not looking for anything more or less, just uh, about the same um, access to things that everyone else has. And so um, when we look at um, towns that border us, you know, the relationships, I mean, I think about the relationship we have with uh, the people of Argyle, for example, now after the landfill fight and all of that, you know, the those partnerships and friendships just continue to grow. We're seeing more alliances um, coming to Penobscot Nation through a lot of grassroots work by our tribal members you know i know you've had maria and sherry and a whole host of other people esther and others on the show uh, you know that that's what i'm talking about when i say um that wabanaki people's patience are running a bit thin um is we're starting to see real activism outside of tribal government and and um it's really good to see because uh because there's a legitimacy and there's a um kind of passion that goes with somebody that says I'm not elected I don't I don't want to be elected I'm 
I'm Penobscot though, and I care about our future. And they, they organize and they do a very good job of intelligently reflecting um, Penobscot's position. So, so I think it, you know, as I said in the beginning, you know, we're at a crossroads, and um, and I think that uh, tribal government and leadership we're going to have some tough decisions to make, and I think we're going to always have to. Um, continue to ratchet up our approach until people truly understand that we're not here to hurt anyone we're here to enhance and protect uh, what we have so that as we move forward um, people will always know um, people Penobscot people will always understand that they're being governed by their own people their election choices make a difference their um, their community is making a difference all of those things are critically important to um, we always talk about, you know, seven generations. Where will we be in seven generations? You know, my guess is we're going to be in a very good place because of the type of people we have. But um, so that gives me a great deal of hope despite um, the challenges we have at the policy level. Yeah. And, but, I, you know, I think that one of, the, one of the things that's been traditionally happening is that we've been depending on the legislature in Augusta to create economic opportunities for the tribes, for the large part, uh, and, and I and I think that in the in the towns in Maine, just have never considered uh, working with the tribes or what the tribes had to offer. I'm my thought is that you know there may be something, I don't know, I don't know what, but in different areas, tourism or you know different areas. Uh, that we could work with various towns on. I mean, if they would, when they're talking about their future and, and redefining it, uh, that they should, you know, consider the, the tri you know, tribal input in, in how we could help each other. Yeah, and I think we can do a lot. And again, you know, as I said in the beginning, you know, we're not interested in anybody doing anything for us. I think we, we're quite capable of handling our affairs. And I think it's, education and getting out there and speaking with chambers and uh, you know talking to uh, main municipal committees and doing all the things that uh, we need to do to educate people about what we have to offer uh, the opportunities that are there and what our goals and objectives are as a tribe which are not much different than yours we want health prosperity and uh, happiness for our people and we want them to be safe and we want you know integrity-based judicial systems. We want a whole host of things uh, that are not unlike any other main community. Yeah. You know, I'm just wondering, um, is there any sort of, any new new projects that you're considering right now? Yeah, so, um, so the tribe, you know, as you know, we have the corporation and uh, they focus predominantly on federal contracting and uh, alternative energy and and a whole host of services that are government-based. Um, we've started to diversify away from that to um, set up training programs, construction trade programs, et cetera, and, and starting to bid a lot of non-government work. So um, our goal is to um, build a construction company um, within Pine, but also to open an office of economic development on the tribal side, and we're working on that now so that we can... Um, 
so that, you, you know, entrepreneurs, people that want to do cultural-based, you know, we have a lot of guides that are interested in guide services. We have a lot of people that are interested in, in doing uh, cultural tourism-based things. We have people in the arts and crafts, and, and we have a um, whole lot of other opportunities. We're also looking at, um, you know, uh, as you know, we're looking at some cultural-based things uh, that could create jobs like... Um, uh, a cultural center, performing arts center. Uh, we're also um, very early stages of starting to vet some hospitality stuff um, in terms of hotels, uh, etc. So we're um, we got some big plans. Uh, I think um, you know we have. It's it's funny you know now we we really can see the light at the end of the tunnel on projects because we have developed those relationships and resources to be able to bring things to fruition. Of course, everything's in the details and the studies and all of those things. So um, we're very hopeful that uh, we'll get to a place where we're seeing a whole whole bunch of diversified businesses going on within the tribe that allow the many different skill sets within our workforce to be able to compete for those jobs. Yeah. So we're not just crying and lamenting about the past and what we don't have. We're moving forward uh, with some pretty uh, visionary projects, I think. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, understanding the past is critical, uh, making sure we're educating about the past. I think the TRC does a great job of that when you look at their model and approach. It's not a shame and blame game, and we're certainly not interested in sitting on a couch and playing the victims forever. I mean, we have things to do. We have the strength to get them done. And uh, these are obstacles, but we've been faced with those for hundreds of years. And our people's resiliency tells me that uh, we're going to do just fine. Yeah, and I, I, totally, I totally agree with that. And um, I look forward to uh, seeing what new projects uh, come up in the future for, for, the, for the Penobscot Nation and for the other, tr other tribes as well. Thank you. And on behalf of the tribe, thank you for having me. Sure. Uh, and thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Webinaki Windows. The music, music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. I want to thank Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation and Amy Brown, our engineer. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows.